Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. And I'm Trisha Bobita. And this week on the show, we have the eminent, amazing, incredible, definitive Judy Bloom. She's been writing books since the mid-70s. She has books for kids like Super Fudge, books like Forever, which I remember I really loved in high school, or maybe Summer Sisters. She has a new novel out for adults. It's called In the Unlikely Event. This is the woman who has been shaping childhoods for the last, like, 50 years. She's the reason I know not to eat a turtle. <laughs> Don't eat tiny pet turtles. Do you want to elaborate on that at all, or is that... That's what I learned from Super Fudge. <laughs> Don't eat a turtle. Yes. Okay. What about, like, chocolate turtles, though, with the walnuts and the caramel? Those are pretty good. I At that point, when I read that book, I didn't know that those were an option. Oh, fair enough. Fair enough. In, in which case, avoid all turtles altogether. Yes. <laughs> For me, it was forever. I remember distinctly reading that book when I was, I think, probably a sophomore or a junior in high school. And it was one of those books that I kind of felt like I had to hide under the bed. I grew up in like a very open household, but that was still one of those books that it was like, I don't want to talk to my parents about reading this book. (laughs) Too steamy. Hide it under the mattress. And this is what Judy Bloom is so well known for, right? She's willing to write about things that freak a lot of people out. I mean, think about Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. Sure, it's not a book about periods, but that's also like a thing that happens just like in real life, which is like kind of intense and awful. And here we are talking about it. In a book that is often banned which is something that I always find hilarious, that Judy Bloom, these wonderful, wonderful books that help kids understand how to grow up, sometimes get banned, which is not good at all. But we learned a lot from them, and we learned a lot from talking to her. Then later in the show, Greta's going to sit down and talk with Kwame Alexander, who talks about growing up hating books and then somehow becoming a children's book author. Both of these people are the sorts of authors who ended up writing books for kids that they wish they had had as children themselves. For Judy, that meant stories about periods, like, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. And for Kwame, it's a different sort of story, but we will get to that later as well. When we talked to Judy from her home in Florida, we had to ask, since she's responsible for so many of the books that formed our childhoods, which books formed hers? You know, I read what was available. I mean, I liked to read. By the time I was 12, I was reading the adult books in my parents' bookshelves. And I'm grateful to them for never having judged what I was reading, that reading was a good thing in my house. So no matter what you were reading, that was great. Do you remember what any of those titles were, what some of those books were? Oh, yes, I definitely do. I remember... My first favorite book was Madeline, which I found myself in the library when I was about four years old. And I loved it so much, I hid it. (laughs) I didn't want my mother to take it back to the library because I thought it was the only copy in the world. And so (laughs) when she said, where is that book or whatever, however she would have asked me, I was like, I don't know. 
and what book? <laughs> so to this day, I feel guilty that I stole a library book. <laughs> so I buy oh, as many funny. copies of Madeline as I can to make up for that. I remember the stories of John O'Hara. I remember the adventures of Augie March which had a steamy scene in it that I kept going back to. <laughs> I remember to this day that there was an eagle involved. <laughs> I don't In the steamy scene? There was an eagle, yes. There was something about huh. an eagle. Or, you know, I could be all wrong. It might have been some other bird, but I think it was an eagle. <laughs> that um, sounds very patriotic. Interesting. <laughs> and, oh my God, I, I even read... The Fountainhead. Wow. I even read Anne Rand. I'm sure I didn't know what I was reading, but I liked those stories because I was curious about the adult world and nobody told me anything. And so I uh, satisfied my curiosity a lot by reading those books. It's so funny to think about what you just said about how oftentimes you didn't even quite understand it. I think that's such an interesting idea because so often that is what happens when we're kids reading sort of above our our grade, right? Where the stories are complex enough that you don't quite know what's happening, but you know that it's important and that you will understand it eventually. Yes. I mean, otherwise you don't keep reading. You know, you don't read unless you're involved. I mean, if you don't have to read the book for school, you're reading because you want to read. If you don't like it or don't get it, you put the book down. But there was enough in these books to keep me going. Judy, I feel like I'm a little bit like you where I was using books pretty early on to try to get a an understanding of what the adult world was like. I was always very eager to just be a grown-up. I had no use for being a teenager, I found it confusing and would rather just skip ahead. And it feels like our culture now encourages an extended, if not indefinite, adolescence. Do you think that may be true? Um, I don't know. I don't know if that's true. I think in some cases it's true. I think when it comes to reading, often people who have grown up with a certain kind of YA book, they want to continue reading that which means, you know, a single viewpoint and maybe not as complex. And I'm not putting down YA books. I'm just saying that, you know, they're fine. I would have loved them, some of them anyway, a lot of them probably. But I don't like to see older people who are so stuck on that kind of book that they can't move on to other kinds of books, that they won't branch out. I want them to, you know, try a lot of things. And that's why some of the books are so good. I mean, Sherman Alexie, you know, I put that in the hands of a 14-year-old the other day. And I just knew that I was doing him a favor. <laughs> I just <laughs> knew that he was going to love this book. Judy, I have to tell you, it's funny to hear that you hid Madeline because I hid forever. Oh, you hid forever for other reasons. <laughs> I did hide forever for other reasons. That is very true. Yeah, you know, I grew up reading, you know, Super Fudge. I know Trisha did too. But it was really forever of all of your books that was like, oh my God, what is this? Yes. Well, how old were you, do you think? 
I was, I think I was 16. And so, you know, it was right around that time. Wow. It was right around that time when I was starting to figure all that stuff out. And it was just, yeah, I mean, the illicit nature of that book. It was actually really funny because in preparation for this interview, because that is one of your books that really stuck out for me, I went back and reread it just recently. And it was so fascinating to read it as not a 16-year-old girl. (laughs) And what did you come away with? Well, when I first read it, you know, it's about this young woman who falls in love with a boy for the first time and starts to have these beginning sexual experiences, as I was at that time. And I was in love with this boy, and I kind of thought I was going to be with him for the rest of my life, as does this young woman in the book. And that doesn't happen to be the case. And you know, I think so much about this story is that it's okay that it's not forever, right? And I remember when I read it as a 16-year-old thinking, well, that's silly, Judy, you know, like, (laughs) you will be this is forever. forever. You wanted them together, right? Yeah, I get so many letters that say, can't you write a sequel to that book and, and get them back together? I mean, that's what kids want. But yeah, reading it now, it's like, no, of course they weren't supposed to be together, you know, like, yeah. That was a really great first experience for her, and she will move on to have continuing great experiences throughout her life. We hope so. But yeah, that's We don't know. The sequel wasn't written. (laughs) That's the 31-year-old version of me looking back on the 16-year-old version of myself, too, for sure. Well, that's a positive version. I think that's good. Still to come on Nerdette, more with Judy Bloom. And author Kwame Alexander tells us how to write books for reluctant readers. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast crew, and author Viet Tanwen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. You're listening to Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. I'm Trisha Bobita. And let's get back to our conversation with Judy Bloom. Judy, you mentioned getting letters from readers. And I wonder, you know, maybe it's more email now than handwritten letters, but do you still hear from young people as they're reading your books for the first time? I do, yeah, and it is more email now. It's definitely more email, which changes it some because, you know, when kids were picking up paper and pencil and pouring out their hearts and guts, it was a much more personal kind of letter, I think. I think you mail it off to this fantasy person and you will never have to face this person at the breakfast table. And so it's okay (laughs) to tell her everything. But in email, 
I think kids are smart. They're a little bit more careful. Judy, you mentioned that these young people especially are telling you things that they may not feel they're able to bring up at the breakfast table. And I like to think of your books as sort of, if I was to write you a letter, I think it would have been as a wish fulfillment that like you were my aunt, like the most excellent, coolest version of an aunt who you can talk to about the things that you're uncomfortable talking to your parents about, who seems to really get you and hasn't forgotten what it's like to be an angsty teenager. Do you feel like when you meet people in in bookstores and when you read these letters that you're sort of everyone's aunt? Is that too big a thing to take on, I guess? I don't know. (laughs) If you were in the UK, you would say, are you an agony aunt? (laughs) Oh, wow. Do you know what that is? No. Oh, that's someone who gives advice in a column, an agony aunt. You write your problems to that person and that person writes back about your problem. And when I heard that, I at first I was absolutely horrified. <laughs> no, I don't think of myself as either an agony aunt or an aunt. I'm an adult who somehow has a connection to kids, maybe to the kid I was. And it's really not so much teens, and it never was teens. Hmm. It's younger than that, you mm-hmm. know, a little bit younger. And I still, I, I love that group, that what they now call tweens. I never really wrote for teenagers. I don't know why people think, you know, maybe forever, yes. But I, there was no category called YA right. when I was started to write. And so, you know, I wasn't writing books earmarked for teenagers. Who are some of the other examples of people who you've heard from over the years that really sort of stick in your memory of folks who your work had a, a great impact on? Well, you know, I once did a whole book on on their letters. Mm-hmm. Um, do you know that? Yeah. They are letters to Judy. Well, there have just been so many, so many. I mean, I remember a young guy who said that he had a girlfriend and it was like Catherine and Michael in forever. And then she broke up with him. And he wanted to die. Then he read forever, and he realized that his life was not over. That's good. That's important. We need fiction to sometimes give us a roadmap for those experiences we are having for the first time or haven't had yet. We do, yeah. But, you know, there. I mean, there's so many wonderful letters. I can't pull them out for you right this second out of my head. Do you have any idea how many letters you've gotten? No. <laughs> no, I have no idea how many I've gotten. No. I bet Lots. they could span from Key West to the mainland. I bet that's how far they could go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can just tell you that I, you know, when they were snail mail letters, I mean, I have boxes and boxes and boxes of them. And I went through to do letters to Judy. I went through many, many, many big cartons of letters. And then there were some kids who wrote to me for many years until they were grown up, and I still hear from them sometimes. That's very satisfying to know that they were troubled kids, and they needed something, and writing to me helped them, and I would always write back. So I have some of them fill up a whole carton of their letters. It's interesting to think about the fact that so often in your books, the things that the characters are going through, they don't involve dragons or fighting other kids to the death in a Hunger (laughs) Game or vampires or monsters. 
No, they don't. I didn't know. Never would have occurred to me to do that then. <laughs> you know, I mean, everything is so cyclical. When I um, started writing, I mean, I wrote about what I was interested in, which was real life. And a lot of us came of age then writing in the 70s. Norma Klein, Richard Peck, um, Norma Fox Maser, Harry Maser. There were just a lot of us. And they provided my kids, who were young teens in the, in the 70s, with a lot of wonderful reading experiences. And so I'm grateful to all of them. And... And after that, you know, there was no, there were no series books then. I mean, series books were so out. If anybody <laughs> tried to write a series book or a rhyming book, that that was, <laughs> that was not the way to go. You know, the seventies, when I really started in the late sixties, but the seventies were all about reality. And some people want to read about fantasy. There was no fantasy that was being written then. And so, you know, we come back to things. I mean, my husband and I grew up on, we often talk about our collection of the Wizard of Oz books mm. because both of us owned the whole series. And both of us are still angry that our mothers gave our <laughs> Oz books away <laughs> after we left home. And we say, what a collection we could have. Two, two first editions of each one. Um, so I did like those books, although I would tell you that I was never really that much into fantasy. I had so much fantasy of my own inside my head, but it was, fa it was a fantasy life that was based on real life. You know, my fantasies were real-life fantasies, and they were more Sally J. Friedman kind of fantasies. So I didn't fantasize about dragons or fighting other kids to the death. I, and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, my husband and I listened to the first Hunger Games book on a long road trip, and we, we couldn't stop. And we pulled the car into the driveway. We got home, and we just sat in the driveway until it was finished. <laughs> I mean, it was, good, it was good reading, you know, good storytelling. So there's room for all kinds of books. I think that's my point. And what I wish is, it's, it's really interesting, and I saw this with my grandson too when he was little, is kids come into the bookstore and they head for the books that they know. They head for the familiar. Sure. And you say to them, look, look at this one. Here, read a little bit here and see what it's about. And they'll do that and they put it down and they go right back to what they know. I find that very interesting because as a kid... And again, I was talking to George, my husband, about this. Like, when, when you went to the library, how did you do it? And, we, I mean, we both, we liked the discovery. We liked finding something new. We liked browsing in the books, mm -hmm. reading about it, and seeing if we thought we would like it. And I tried to encourage them to do that. But they just go right to the familiar series you know, I had a little Captain Underpants guy the other day, and that was it. I couldn't get him away from it. And it's like, okay, that's good. You like to read Captain Underpants? Great. Read Captain Underpants. And then I told him a story that was true, but I wouldn't show him the picture, that that morning I snapped a picture of my husband dressed as 
kind of Captain Underpants <laughs> making the bed. And he said, oh, can I see that? And I said, no. <laughs> George said to me, are you going to tweet that picture? And I said, no, no, I'm erasing it right now. I had that same experience with my nephews recently at the bookstore. I said, pick out any book you want. And they both apparently beelined for a series that they had been familiar with and one wanted the next book in a series that he hadn't read so I thought you know that's good and then but the little one just picked a book that he knew he liked and that he already had the same one (laughs) right right and that's so interesting and that parent will say but we have that at home we already have that book yeah yeah. you've read that book a hundred times he's like yeah I I know know. I like it (laughs) I know but I want it again so you know as long as they're reading we -hmm. should encourage them Well, and there is a certain consolation in having two copies of one really good book, right? (laughs) I don't know. Is there? Well, two first editions of The Wizard of Oz, maybe, but I don't think we needed two of this book. (laughs) So, Judy, you've said that In the Unlikely Event is your last book. Is that still true? Your last planned project? Well, okay. What I'm saying is my last, this is what I think today, right? My Mm -hmm. last long novel. In the Unlikely Event took five years between all the research and the writing, and it's a complicated book. I hope it doesn't read that way. I hope it doesn't scare people that it's too complicated. I don't think so. But to write it and to make it all come out the way I wanted it to, it was tough going. It was tough. And so I'm glad it's over. (laughs) And now, uh, you know, we've just opened a bookstore and it's great fun to sell books and put them in the hands of other people and to talk books and reading. And I'm loving it. I'm loving it. So I'm not going to say that I'm never going to write anything because who knows what will have to come out. I never know. But I don't think that it's going to be a five-year project. That's fair. That's fair. And I think being surrounded by books all day long and meeting people, you may stumble upon some new characters that, that you need to share with us. So we would be welcoming. No, it's just the opposite. <laughs> I'm totally satisfied. I get my characters oh. at the bookstore and I'm happy and I come home and that's it. It's a very nice change. So you don't think you'll miss writing at all? You don't find yourself taking notes about a weird quirky thing that happened that you might want to use someday? Not yet. Not yet. That's a really Again, good I, I, you know, even if I didn't have a bookstore to go to every day, I wouldn't be writing now. This was going to be my gap year where I was just going to relax <laughs> and read all day. Um, I, I never was going to write anything this year. After a five-year period like that, you need sure. time off. Yeah. You need to refresh. Yeah, sure. that's totally fair. I have to say the idea of starting a bookstore and running it is like my dream gig, Judy. You're doing it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Everybody's, everybody who loves books wants a bookstore. We, we just fell into this. We're incredibly lucky. And since we're nonprofit, which is a long story, It takes a lot of the worry out of it, I think. Well, and being in Key West is not a bad place to be doing anything. (laughs) So I think you've got the right idea. It's not a bad place. (laughs) It's a pretty good place with some great people. Judy Bloom, thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you for having me. Judy Bloom's latest novel, In the Unlikely Event, is out in paperback now. Check it out. It's a good one. I think you'll like it. 
just ahead, I talk with Kwame Alexander. He tells me about the word pulchritudinous, mm-hmm. which I'm as sorry. a Latin student I am well familiar with. Do you know this word, Trisha? No, but I was thinking maybe I should just say gesundheit. Pulchritudinous. Do you want to try and spell it? No. <laughs> P. <laughs> good, good. U. Pulchritudinous means beautiful in Latin. It sounds like a Harry Potter spell. I know. I like pulchritude because that, I feel like, kind of has a stank on it, you know? Like an attitude? Yeah, yeah, Like a yeah, good attitude exactly. would be a pulchritude because yeah, yeah. it would be a beautiful attitude? Yeah. Isn't that nice? It's not quite how it works, but pulchritudinous coming up. You're listening to Nerdette. This week, we're talking to people who are very good at writing the kinds of books they wish they had been able to read as kids. For Kwame Alexander, that meant writing a story about a smart black boy who was maybe not super excited about school. Kwame Alexander is the author of a bunch of poetry collections, some for adults, some for kids. His book, The Crossover, won a Newbery Medal, which you may know is that gold sticker that's yes. on the cover of all the best children's books. It's As a very a big youth, deal. I tried to pick off that sticker from the Polar Express. I remember it very distinctly. What did you want to do with the sticker? Did it you think it was so money? It was just shiny. I think I wanted to just like wear it. Did, it. did you succeed? No, I picked it off halfway and then it was just like gross and weird and I felt terrible. <laughs> Don't disfigure your books. (laughs) Yeah, leave them be. Leave your books be. (laughs) Kwame Alexander has written a new novel in verse. It's called Booked, which is a confusing name for a book (laughs) to be called Booked. But it is a little on the nose, if I have to say. (laughs) If I can critique the title, it's a little on the nose to call your book Booked. It's real nice. Here's Greta's conversation with Kwame about how much she loved this new work. So I have to tell you, I read Booked and I wept a lot. And Booked? Yeah, man. Me too, when I was writing it. No one else on the planet has cried but you and I. Really? Seriously? Is that true? I haven't heard anyone say they cried reading booked, wept, (laughs) muled. No, I haven't heard about that. I'm curious why, how, when? Well, so there's a thing we talk about on the show a lot, which is that idea that, you know, so many books that come out these days are like the dystopian, like, you know, the stakes are so high because you have to fight for your dinner or otherwise you literally will starve to death or, you know, you won't be able to feed your family or whatever it is. And Booked is one of those perfect stories where the stakes are equally as high, but it's about real life. You know, it's about like what you're going to say to this girl who you really like or what it feels like when your parents might actually split up, you know, all these like very real things, especially when you're a 12-year-old kid. Like, that stuff is so intense. Oh, my goodness. I remember writing down a script so I could talk to Claudia in seventh grade. Like, I didn't know what to say to her, but it was real. Like, that struggle was real for me. Exactly. So, I, yeah. so well, I'm glad you got that. Thank you. That, I mean, yeah, I, I cried a lot writing that book, especially when it was over because I didn't want it to end. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were moments that were really poignant and intense that way, too, but also just like the, I don't know, I mean, the poetry, the fact that this is a novel in verse, I thought was really interesting because your economy of words forces you to use so much emotion in a way that's not like, yeah, and then I and then I felt really sad, you know? I mean, there's so much more to it than that. Show, don't tell. Yes, I was going to say that to you, actually. And the fact that you just said economy of words means that I love you. <laughs> like. I don't need to do this interview. You can actually do it by yourself. Like, you get it. No, that's not as much fun. (laughs) I mean, I get it, which is why I'm so excited to actually talk to you. You know, it was like, oh, I don't need to write down questions. Like, I know what I want to talk to this guy about. 
So you've said that Booked is one of the most autobiographical stories you've written. To what extent is that the case? In the sense that my father made me read the encyclopedia growing up. Like, who does that? Safeway. Do you have Safeway here? We don't. Jewel is the Safeway equivalent. Okay, so Jewel. Imagine going to Jewel, and Jewel has these encyclopedias, Funk and Wagnalls. And if you buy a certain amount, you get a Funk and Wagnalls encyclopedia, one volume. So pretty much every week we were getting a different volume, and I had to read those books. And I hated reading. I loathed words because this dude made me read the encyclopedia. Like, what father does that? And so, yeah, I mean, this book is about, you know, somebody was asking me, well, you grew up hating reading because you were sort of immersed in literature. And then you won a Newbery Medal. Like, how do you come from that 12-year-old kid who hates books to winning a Newbery Medal? What happens in between? And I wanted to write that story. That was sort of the impetus for writing Booked. It's sort of figuring that out. How a boy's life gets turned around and the thing he loves the most, soccer, and the thing he loathes, words, sort of switch places. Sort of like sliding doors or whatever you trading places. <laughs> All kinds of mixed up metaphor movie references. Sorry. <laughs> so I have to tell you, I was that kid who grew up and we had an encyclopedia on the dinner table so that in case anything came up during dinner, we could just look it up real quick and talk about it. That was my dad. See, I think that's beautiful now. It was. I really enjoyed it, but I like. I took to reading really happily. You gotcha. know? For me, the thing that my dad made me do was exercise, and I was very resentful about that. Hmm. My sister was sort of like you. She loved to read. And again, I loved reading until I was about 10 or 11. I loved reading with my mom. I loved mm. hearing stories. I was so into words. And then something happened. And of course, I thought about what was it that happened. And it's what happens to a lot of boys in particular and students in general. And that is they are not given any more books that they're interested in. And librarians and teachers, in order for me to give you a book that you're going to like, I got to know you. I got to know what you would like, which requires me to understand you a little bit. And so I... I wasn't being given books anymore that I was interested in. And so they started calling me reluctant. Well, I had read Things Fall Apart by Chinua Chebi by age nine. Hmm. And I had read Pedagogy of the Oppressed by Paulo <laughs> Freire at age 11 because my father forced me to read it. And I read Man wow. Child of the Promised Land. I'd read all these books. So I was, I was articulate and well-read. But I wasn't being given books in middle school that I was excited about. And so it just sort of fell off. I fell out of love with them. And I think that happens to a lot of kids now. I wanted to write this book to show teachers and students and kids how to get back on the literary bandwagon because words are cool. Well, I think so much of it, too, is that idea that... You know, this is a book that you didn't have as a 12-year-old, right? And now you're making it for kids who are super intelligent but maybe reluctant readers to be able to find themselves in something that just, like, literally didn't exist before. Well, not just for the super intelligent, for the kids who maybe are not as intelligent or who are not reading at their grade level, who have not read the dictionary. You know, for, I'm, re I'm really writing for all these kids because I believe that poetry is the great equalizer. Because I believe it brings us all together. Because I believe there's something for everyone. There's that intellectual curiosity. There's that emotional pull. There's that white space that's not intimidating. You know, there's the, the rhythm and the rhyme and the metaphor and the simile. And then there is the idea, the action of reading a poem and becoming more human. Mm. And that's for all the kids. 
<laughs> yeah. So what do you mean by that? Just like the 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 ultimate. I have no idea what I mean by that, but that was deep, wasn't it? I hope we. Hey, look, that was deep. <laughs> I gotta say that again. The idea of becoming more human. Okay, so here's what I mean. Poetry allows us to take these very heavy moments, these very emotionally powerful experiences in our life and distill them down into a few words, a few lines that can captivate us and capture our attention and make us feel something. And I think ultimately that feeling of something, it engages us, it empowers us, and it makes us want to do something. And I think that brings us together and it just makes us become more human. Yeah, I think it makes us more empathetic, too. I mean, it's that same idea of being able. (laughs) That's the other sort of alliteration I was looking for. Sort of engage, empower, and empathize. That's it. There you go. There you go. I'm going to borrow that. Yeah, take it. You don't have to borrow it. You can keep it. Oh, you're kind. I find it really interesting thinking about poetry because in some ways I feel like it's one of the most esoteric art forms, right? I mean, it's like hyper literary in so many ways that it often can feel really ambiguous and like almost inaccessible. You know, all of a sudden it's like pretty obvious that poetry, of course, actually is super universal. You know, you think about people like Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein and like, oh, we've been doing this for a long time. And so many of us from being little kids are super well adjusted to experiencing life through poetry. How are we taught how to speak and listen as kids, as babies? We're taught in rhythm and rhyme. Fox and socks, fox and socks. I mean, that's how we were taught. So how is it that we go from sort of loving language, like like you said, Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein, and getting to high school and loathing Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's sonnet number 73 makes no sense to us. So what happens between that place of Dr. Seuss and, and, and Shakespeare? And you cannot expect a kid to still fall in love with hope as the thing with feathers if you haven't given them a bridge. And I think we need to get back to that bridge. What is the bridge going to be to get kids to appreciate Walt Whitman and Robert Frost and, and Shakespeare and Emily Dickinson? And and I think I'm the guy to sort of make that bridge. I mean, I'm not saying that in sort of an arrogant way. I just am confident that I was sort of put on this earth to do this. And here's how I know it. My parents read to me poetry nonstop. So even when I fell out of love with books and words and language— I still knew it, but I had to hide it. <laughs> and certainly I couldn't share it, you know, in middle school with my friends because it wasn't cool. Right, right. However, in high school, I met a girl. <laughs> uh-huh. And it all came full circle. So you can imagine, you know, a 12th grader, lanky, <laughs> thinks he's cool guy coming up to you. And he's like, lips like yours ought to be worshipped. See, I ain't never been too religious, but you can baptize me anytime. Can we say that okay. on the show? I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, it works. And so I was in this high school in, in upstate New York and 600 kids in the auditorium. And I walk in and the teacher's like, if you're going to read love poems, I don't know if you're going to have a really a lot of success here. So good luck today. And I'm like, thanks, man. So I go up and there's a kid laughing and kind of kind of rowdy. I'm talking a little bit about the power of poetry and sharing my story. And there's this kid laughing. So I walk up to him like, what's your name? man?" He's like, "Uh, my name's Joe. And I'm like, yeah, Joe's pretty popular. Hi, everybody. He's like, yeah, Joe's all cool. And his guys around him are like, yeah, man, yeah, get him, get him. And so I say, all right, everybody, I got a poem that Joe's girlfriend wrote for him. Want to hear it? 
Everybody's like, yeah. Joe's looking like, huh? What's going on? <laughs> it is not that I don't love you, she says. Indeed, I do. I want to kiss you, to lasso your lips, tame them, rein them into my stable. But first, my love, you must agree to commit to a breath mint. <laughs> and the crowd erupts. And the kids go crazy. And even Joe starts laughing. I have no more problem out of Joe during that entire assembly. It's something I do about four to five days a week. I go to schools uh, K through 12 and, and just share my love of poetry and, and talk about the power of poetry and, and show them how it can transform that. And, and the teachers are laughing and they're having a good time. And I say the same way you're feeling is the same when your kids are going to feel when you bring poetry into the classroom. Aww. And so they get it. I don't have to do anything else. They get it. Wow. It's, it's, it's poetry in motion. But when a kid says, dude, I don't even read books, and I couldn't put yours down, you know? Or a kid today at Granger Middle School, he came up to me and he said, I cannot wait for your next book. So I see the light going off, and I think the teachers see it. That's, that's like the real reward here, you know, for all this work. Call me Alexander. Thank you so much for joining us on Nerdette. Thank you for having me. This was great. All of the thanks to Kwame Alexander and Judy Bloom for joining us on this week's episode of Nerdette. You can follow Judy Bloom on Twitter. She tweets pretty good. She is at Judy Bloom. And guess what? Kwame is at Kwame Alexander. Next week on the show, you're not going to want to miss this. We're calling it the live album <laughs> because it's two conversations we had in front of live audiences. Tignataro, the comedian from our conversation at BookCon, and also Gillian Flynn, who we talked to at our live event here in Chicago. It's weird to talk to people in front of people because normally, Trisha, it's just like you and me sitting in an empty room. Well, there's those guys over there. I know. There are a couple dudes in here for now. <laughs> The show is produced by us, Trisha Bobita and Greta Johnson, and by those guys, Colin McNulty and Joe Dassault. Our interns are Maya Cole and Sebrin Mallard. Our executive producer is Joel Meyer. You can listen to us wherever you're listening to us because you already are. We would love it if you took the plunge and subscribed on iTunes, Stitcher, follow us on NPR One or the new WBEZ app. Ooh, you know what else is really nice is if you leave us a review with all the stars on the iTuneses, like Rec Show did. Rex Show says we make a sometimes stressful commute actually enjoyable, which is really sweet. That's nice. That is what we want to do. Because commutes are the worst. We're glad we can help <laughs> at least once a week. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter at Nerdette Podcast. We're on Instagram, Goodreads, Snapchat, I suppose. All of the things. Facebook, too. Nerdette is a production of WBEZ Chicago, where there's all sorts of really great stuff for all sorts of nerds. If you are a Chicago architecture nerd, you might like Curious City. If you're more of like the weird, creepy, fictional Western type, you might really like Pleasure Town. And if you're a music nerd, definitely check out Sound Opinions. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. Do your homework. Ooh. Creepy whisper, I think, is the way to get it really into their brains. Yeah, totally. That's good. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. 
Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.